0: Welcome, everyone, back to Glam City. This is our second season, and we are excited to be bringing you 10 wonderful episodes of Oral Delights in 2018. Now, as you know, because I'm sure you're avid listeners, here on Glam City, we lift the curtain and take you behind the scenes to reveal the marvellous archivists, curious curators, and purveyors of cultural heritage who are working in galleries, libraries, archives, and museums across Australia. And yes, if you are paying attention, that is our acronym, Glam Glam Galleries, Libraries, Archives and Museums. Now, on this episode of Glam City, we are going to hear from a respected publisher and now author about a book she has written on the history
1: of 2001. Uh, Philippa McGinnis is the Executive Publisher of New South Publishing, an award-winning press that specialises in publishing non-fiction, including history. Yay! She's also just written A Very Personal History of 2001, The Year That Changed Everything. Thank you for joining us, Philippa. It's an absolute pleasure. You are very well known in the glam sector as a publisher of histories. Um, what prompted you to write a history? Um,
2: the really glib answer is I thought, well, how hard can it be? <laughs> you know, having published tens, hundreds of books of history. But that's not really true because I know it is hard. It's so hard. Um But I had an idea, it's as simple as that and I write about this a bit in the preface where I talk about sitting amongst historians at a conference and I don't get to many conferences really because my job is quite busy and demanding and there's just not time. But my mind wandered, and all these um, historians were talking about the books that came out of the bicentennial year, and it just got me thinking about the books that focus on a particular year. And, you know, I'm running through all these big dates, you know, 1066, 1492, you know, all the kind of the hits um, of all the years. And I was thinking, what would be a more recent one, a year that was really interesting, and 2001 popped into my head. And at that point, I thought, I will have to find someone to write that. That was truly where, you know, my my thoughts were were headed. Um, Who would be good? Who could take that on? Who could write about Al-Qaeda and Tampa? You know, who's somebody who could... Who could take all that on. And then I remembered my own personal tragedy. And it really was a moment where I thought, oh my God, I need to do this myself. And that thought was terrifying. It was exciting and exhilarating, but it really was terrifying because I'm surrounded by all these professors who've published millions of peer-reviewed words between them. And I'm thinking... I am not worthy. Who am I? And then to get back to my original thought, I think I really did think, well, you've done this many times on the other side. You've watched books evolve.
1: How hard can it be? (laughs) It does start with a a very sad personal story. Can you explain what happened and also how you thought that sad tragedy kind of would filter into the work, I suppose?
2: Yeah. We were living in Singapore in 2001 and I was pregnant. I was very pregnant. And just after Christmas, when I in fact thought my baby was about to be born... Um He died in utero, and stillbirth is really quite common, much more common than people realize and at that time i i don 't think i 'd ever heard of a woman having a stillborn baby and Of course, then I realized it really is very common and and I personally know quite a few women to whom this has happened. And because of the silence around it, after Daniel, our son died, all kinds of people came out of the woodwork, I suppose. You know, friends of my mother's would say, oh, I've never really talked to anyone about this, but that happened to me, you know, 40 years ago or Mm. whatever. And it was really shameful. So that, I guess, in some ways is the heart of the book and it was personally challenging but in a way cathartic for me to write about it after you know really quite a long time and a lot of people who know me pretty well probably don't know that this happened unless you know they happen to be on my email list or in my close circle in in 2001 So that was a part of it. But the bigger point is that because I think it was a year that for a lot of people did throw up a lot of emotion because of 9-11, we felt this incredible uncertainty and anxiety. And even though... People are killed in great numbers, horrific numbers, every day across the world in different kinds of wars. There was something about this that really touched people and affected people. So writing about the grief and loss associated with that and my own grief and loss kind of all got mixed up. Mm.
0: So you're sort of talking about the way that national narratives or global narratives of time were iterated in a personal very individual narrative about grief and time.
2: Yeah, that's true. Um, But I am also writing explicitly about these national narratives as, as well. So I'm sure that, you know, some readers, perhaps some historians, will think, well, she's really having a cake and eating it, you know, doing both. But for me, that's how we live, you know. You can have this really profound thing happen to you in your life on the same day that you're watching asylum seekers being forced to get off the boat on Nauru. and
0: Do you think many academic historians are not so good at combining those two I th- lived experiences? No,
2: life? they're not. And why should they be? Because that's not their project by, by and large. But also I think academic historians are trained out of doing that really explicitly and that's fine you know even talking about my personal story now this is actually the first time I've done it you know into a microphone because um, the book's not coming out for a little while and it's it's hard it's hard you know not not every but I've chosen to do it but not everyone should have to say well, I happen to be writing about something that happened in 1968 or 1940 or whatever, you know, on the world stage, some global event. Therefore, now it's my duty to write about some terrible tragedy that happened, you know, in my own family. That It shouldn't be compulsory, but it is an interesting way to, of thinking about how we experience time and how we remember and all those kinds of things.
1: And I think it does touch on something that is um, a very human trait, which is remembering bigger narratives through the prism of our own personal experience and also remembering national narratives through the prism of our families. So it's a very, what should I say, vernacular reading of the ways we do history, in fact. Yeah, absolutely.
2: And um, I was really... I suppose I was aware of that as I was writing. It wasn't, well, I'm going to sit down and write a vernacular, you know, account of how we remember history. No, I don't think I would have had that phrase in my original proposal. Mm. But I was aware that that was kind of what I was doing because I'm not dispassionate Mm. about any of this. Yeah, you know, I pop into the story, I hope not too much, but you know, at, at various points along the way and often to express emotion because, you know, something, even when I was revisiting it through the newspapers or recollecting something that happened at the time that had nothing to do with me directly, I would find myself thinking, oh my God, that is terrible. That is just the worst thing. And I would write that because I assume other readers felt that too. And we're all, you know, sitting around going, What the mm-hmm.
0: So Pip now is quite a character in two thousand and one, the book? I think so. Mm-hmm. So tell us how it how the book works. You start off it's got twelve chapters, but are mm-hmm. they twelve months? Yes.
2: It looks chronological, but that's a bit of a trick actually, because the kind of history I really don't like reading is this happened, then this happened, then this happened, then this happened? Because Note that to gets self listeners yeah. <laughs> and,
1: and, and, <laughs> and, and presenters.
2: <laughs> it, it can get a bit boring. You know, like I'm interested in themes, but having published hundreds of books, I knew that 12 chapters really was a pretty good number of chapters for a book. And lo and behold, a year has 12 <laughs> chapters. So I didn't want to be too clever. About it. So, what I have done apart from September, which is all about basically one or two days, 9 11 and the next day, so the 11th of September, and the few days perhaps that followed, but it's very much in the moment. And the December chapter, where I write about Daniel, it's thematic. So, in general, I pick out something that hooks in that happened in that actual month that hooks into the broader theme. So, for example, there's a chapter on religion, which went in completely different directions to those I thought it would go in. But George Pell became Archbishop of Sydney in April. And so that became quite a good book to write about a whole lot of things to do with religion. Actually, I don't think it was April. I think it was May. See, maybe I'm not so good with dates. <laughs> so yeah, it's May. April is about rights. And you know, I come at that from a few different directions. Slobodan Milosevic was arrested in April, so I thought, well, that's a, a very big human rights and story, and and one about justice as well. It happens to have been the first quarterly essay in Australia it was was published in April 2001. And it was Robert Mann writing about the Stolen Generations and Lowitcher O'Donoghue. So I write about that. So, you know, there's Chapter on Money commemoration with the um, centenary of Federation technology, war. It's got everything, really. (laughs) No cars, though. No cars. I no can't. I love,
0: there's a great <laughs> bit in the in the preface where Pip says something like, automobile enthusiasts get stuffed. <laughs> yeah.
1: Petrol heads. Petrol heads. Sorry. <laughs> soz not soz. I fe- as I was reading it, I was thinking aloud, you know, it brought back lots of personal memories. 2001 mm. was a big year for me as well, personally. But also memories of being a political actor student mm. in 2001. And I was thinking, is this book for us who lived through it? Is it for our... Our social generation, who remember nine eleven, um, how, or is it for our children's generation, or or the children of, or the children that many of us might be teaching, or mm. you know, seeing as our own, or nieces and nephews, and so on, are they going to read this? Because for them, you know, nine eleven is on a TV, like the moon landing is for some of us who yeah. didn't live through yeah, it. Yeah, exactly.
2: Do I have to choose? You know, every every writer, I think, wants lots of different kinds of readers. And, you know, in some ways, I think I'm probably writing with the assumptions that my readers will remember it. Mm. So, because it does, everyone I've talked to remembers where they were on 9-11, for, for example. Or they remember voting in what became known as the Tampa election. So, I think... They are probably most likely going to be my readers, but I would love my kids to read it. And I've been really struck by some of the younger people who I've been working with at Penguin Random House who were in high school during nine eleven, and, you know, they remember it like that. It will be really interesting to see if readers who weren't born in 2001 find it revelatory. I hope so. You know, I hope that they understand the world and the world of their parents a bit better. What else can you hope for, really?
1: Well, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, another thing that really struck me reading this book is um, comparing 2001 to perhaps 1901. And you start with a brilliant chapter on January 2001, which is the incredibly special flotilla of uh, the sort of, you know, anniversary of Federation, the Centenary of Federation celebratory parade, which really comes across as being pretty lame. Um, And in 1901 it wasn't. You know, it was Mm. really full of promise and Mm. it was the heralding of a new century and a new nation and we can look back and critique its sort of racism and so on now. But it really was this, you know, very positive... Uh, full of optimism moment and a hundred years later this book feels like quite a we're in a very different place.
2: Yeah we really are. I loved writing that chapter because I really had fun with it because (laughs) it was so lame. Like it, it was, I, I went as I write to the journey of a nation parade and I said to my husband, Hey, you remember when we went down there? And he went, Nope. <laughs> did we go to that? And I said, You have forgotten the unforgettable event. So I, I really had fun with it, but it did get me thinking exactly along the lines that you're talking about, Anna. And I think that our really positive, exuberant moment was the year before. It was the Olympics. Mm -hmm. And that was when for, you know, those however long it was, 10 days, we felt like we were at the centre of the world. We were a nation that had a lot to offer. We were grappling with different things. You know, you've got Midnight All wearing their sorry suits at the closing ceremony. There was something kind of glamorous and um, exuberant about it. And that had dissipated and no matter how hard the centenary of federation committees tried to ramp it up, they didn't stand a chance. Because we were ambivalent
0: about it and you can't manufacture that kind of stuff. Mm. Listeners, you're here on Glam City 2SER 107.3, listening to Pip McGuinness, who is talking to us about her new book, The Year That Changed Everything, 2001. To download this show, check out our back catalogue, head to 2SER.com or your favourite podcast app and look for Glam City. This is a podcast made by the Australian Centre for Public History at UTS with the support of 2SER. Pip.
1: You have written an extraordinary history of a really watershed year, but in your other job, in your other life... My real job. ...your real job, you publish other people's histories. How can you compare the two, do you think? It's a
2: really interesting question. When I launched into this and asked my very supportive boss if I could have some leave to write the book, she said, I think it will make you a better publisher and i've re- i've often wondered whether that is actually true because i think in some ways it's made me less tolerant of one and i hope that this doesn't prompt hate mail or anything to to you guys or or to me a lot of people talk about how hard it is and i just loved it <laughs> i could not have loved it more even when i was writing about really different you know difficult things and not just the personal things, you know, like writing about Afghanistan, I found incredibly distressing because you think, goodness, how much can people suffer really? But still just having command of my own project on my own terms was exhilarating. I just loved it. I used to really look forward to my writing days and I would sit at my desk and I wouldn't move, you know, I was just like in this frenzy. So that may have made me less tolerant towards people saying oh, it's been really hard. I've had so much on and I'm just like just do it. You know, it's 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 actually really fun. So that's that's one thing. I will never write anything down ever again without writing the page reference down, (laughs) you know, because going back to, you know, doing that kind of legwork where you're checking your references and so on, I thought, oh, sometimes I thought, you are such an idiot. Like, why didn't you just take a bit more care? So that kind of practical stuff, I think it has made me want to ask my authors to be bolder about what they're writing, because sometimes I see that you can write something and it can be quite abstract, you know, and sometimes people use abstract nouns to describe what they're doing. And now more than ever, I'm like, come on, this is rich material, bring it to life. You know, tell your readers, give them a bit of colour, tell them why this was so significant. Don't assume they know, you know, just push yourself a Mm -hmm. bit more as a a writer. And I think that that is one way in which I probably will become a better publisher just to, I mean, it might be annoying for a lot of my authors who think they're done. and I'm going, no, you need to take this a bit further. But I think that, you know, hopefully it will lead to some
0: better history books.
2: Um, I mean, the other thing... Which sounds very presumptuous. I'm sorry, I don't...
0: I I mean, I think we all... Our second books are hopefully better than our first. (laughs) Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. Well, I, I don't know if I'll have a second book. I hope so, but I hope it's better than my first. But, you know, you...
0: It's not ours. The, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> not yours. I mean, the other thing that's where we're talking to you at this very interesting moment in the publication schedule, I guess. The mm. book's not quite out yet. Mm. This is your first encounter with the microphone. I'm sure there'll be many, many, many more. I expect one of the things that will happen to you is that people will come up with their own personal stories about 2001 and you'll be placed in this position of confessor or hearer of other people's stories yeah. because you've told your own. Yeah. I mean, how are you thinking about that process of, telling your story, but then also carrying a lot of others? Um, that's fine.
2: That's that's life. You know, I'm quite an empathetic person. I'm interested in people's stories. And in fact, for the whole time I've been um, writing this book, doing that has been a kind of field work in a way because everyone became a potential source, whether they knew it or not. That's why
0: you couldn't footnote them.
2: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but... You know, I remember a friend saying, who must have heard me, you know, going on about the book at a party or some function, said, are you going to tell everybody you ever meet that you're writing this book? And I went, yeah, maybe, because you never know what will be thrown up. So, you know, everybody has had stories and some of them have actually ended up in the book because I think wow that's amazing you were there I had no idea yeah but I think that happens to all kinds of writers you know I have an author who wrote about something very personal and at writers festivals she said she just couldn't believe that people would line up to get their books signed by her and then just there would there would be an outpouring of story and connection in a way I think that's what it is it's a gift really mm-hmm that you know that you might think well my book has touched somebody in such a way that they feel compelled to tell their own story i think that's a a gift mm-hmm. but um you know i'm not a qualified therapist or it is
1: a gift but it's it's also an not every history book does this no so you're tapping into something which is about Changing history writing, but also maybe changing audiences as well. Do you think?
2: Oh, it's a it's a really big question, Anna, and it's something I've grappled with a lot. Because, and I'm sure you know you've both thought about this, but I grapple with it, and my my colleagues grapple with the fact every day that most nonfiction is written by men, and I'm sure that you know some readers will think oh, I'm not sure that this is for me. I'm thinking of male readers and I don't want to generalise, but I'm not sure this is for me because it's got all this personal stuff, you know, about pregnancy and babies. Whereas I would say, yeah, but hey, it's got the, you know, launch of the iPod and Wikipedia and, you know, invading Afghanistan.
1: Doesn't every major event have... Babies and deaths. Well exactly.
2: That's my point. And you can't separate them. You just cannot. So I I think that it it's also something I imagine that the publishers are grappling with. You know, how do we how do we pitch this, you know? Is this something for you know, do we get a speaking at the Lowy Institute? Well, no, because I don't have high level contacts in Washington or, or whatever. Or do I do a podcast at Mamma Mia? You know, it's... Well, perhaps both. Perhaps Well, audience. that's... I'm an optimist, but Tamsin, that's exactly what I've... You know, I thought, well, why can't I have both? We're complicated people. You know, women and men, it's not like, no, we, we only read about, you know, geopolitics or we only read about... You know, personal motherhood stories. You know, you can have both, and uh, we need a society that has both. <laughs> let's let's. Well, think more. Yeah, we'd be a better society if we were more explicit about that. I think,
0: and it does have, um, in some ways. Father's Day written all over the front in terms of 2001. I mean, if I think back through those other mm. books with dates on the front, that is a sort of target market for them. So I personally hope that every child in the in Australia buys this for their father and they then read it.
1: Yeah, <laughs> I hope they do. You sneak <laughs> in something else. So as you know, we're coming to the end of our show for those listeners who, uh, you know, predicated play every week. On uh, Wooshka or uh, iTunes, we have a Glam Slam segment where we talk about what's happening in our own diaries in the glam area coming up in Sydney. Thames, and what's up for you? Well, I am actually taking an audio tour
0: mm. uh, as opposed to taking my body somewhere. And I'm going to be listening to the Marvellous Melbourne podcast, which our friend Andy May at the University of Melbourne has been putting together. Oh, I've heard about this. Yes. And it's, it does have a quite snappy title that rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? It combines stories, interviews and personal reflections that interest and inspire people to think about Melbourne, its history and its suburbs. Now, I don't want to give too much away because you have to go listen, but um, they are particularly fond of a segment called It's Elemental, which is perhaps a bit like our Glam Slam, but quite different. But
1: cooler. But cooler.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and apparently this is where Andy goes gets down to the essentials of the way the city's made, both its environment and its natural form. So I think it's like a dream for any planning nerd, which of course... I'm not, but I might be after listening. So they're working on their first season down there with three fantastic episodes to to find on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you are interested in Melbourne out there, listeners, we recently discussed a bit of Melbourne history on our Glam City podcast with uh, mm, Elizabeth Humphreys, didn't we? Yeah. Uh, the memorialisation of the Westgate Bridge. You
1: can press play twice. Twice. Very good. What about you? What are you expecting? Oh me. I am going to the Weave Festival of Aboriginal and Pacific Cultures at the Australian Museum, which looks awesome. They've got heaps of workshops, lots of activities, a fantastic exhibition. So check it out Australian Museum. Brilliant. I've seen it all over the Twitter. Yeah. What about you? Pip?
2: Well, there's always so much happening. Um, but I'm heading to the launch of the Sydney Writers' Festival and I just know there is a lot of history um, involved in the program this year and it's at Carriage Works at the end of April and the beginning of May. We always have lots of book launches and events so the whole year is punctuated um, with them and I know around Anzac Day we're launching a really wonderful book by Mark Johnston called called An Australian Band of Brothers Um, and it's about the emotional relationships within a battalion and it looks particularly at three men and I think it's really moving and terrific but I guess I'm most looking forward to my own book launch Um, so that It's, it's very nice to be on the, on the other side. Um, it's exciting and slightly nerve wracking. So when is that?
0: When is that? Do you know?
2: Well, the book is being, um, launched. So it will be in the shops on the 28th of May. Um, and there will be various events, um, about the place, but I'm hoping to have a kick-ass launch slash party in, um, the middle of June. Brilliant.
0: Okay, so we can all get a copy and take it for signing. Oh, you bet. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Thanks so much for joining us today, Pip. It's I've been, loved it. Yeah, it's Thank been you. really great. Thank it's
0: you. Been super. And that's it for today. So glam out, everyone. Glam out. Glam out. Glam out. <laughs>